conversations and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Nathan Romas. Today, we've brought in the big guns, I guess I can say. Uh, I've got the president of the National Police Federation, Brian Sove here. Welcome, Brian. Oh, good afternoon. Well, actually, good morning for you, Nathan. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a little background on Brian, and then we'll kind of get into this. So Brian's a sergeant with the RCMP. He's done over 18 years of service, uh, most of which has been in the lower mainland of BC in uniform and in plainclothes jobs. And Brian started the National Police Federation in early 2016. It was certified by the Federal Labor Board in 2019, and he was elected as the first president later that year. So uh, thank you for being on the show, and I think it'll be a really informative discussion, especially for your members, and, but for police in general and for the public. So uh, let's get into it, and if you can kind of start us at the beginning and uh, tell us about yourself and where you come from. Well, sure. Uh, hey, well, Nathan, first off, thanks for putting this together. I know it's a, a big initiative, and and I got to give you hats off. I was thinking this morning that the uh, the title you picked, the Quiet Professional, is really quite apropos for policing because I think that's exactly what every member of any police service is. They just show up, they do, and they don't really expect. Um, accolades from the public and, and they're just quiet about their service to the community. So it's the, it's the perfect heading for, uh, for a podcast about policing. Oh, thank um, you. I didn't want it to be a, like a, I don't want some stolen valor here. And I know a lot of, it's usually been used in reference to special forces, but uh, uh, I have heard it in podcasts, uh, as I said, in kind of our prelude episode, it's been used in policing uh, um, and, even in some athletics to some extent. So yeah, no, I appreciate it. No, no, well done. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't have much of a story to tell. Um, yeah, I came to policing, uh, later in life in my early thirties, uh, mainly because, uh, so I grew up in Montreal, uh, the son of a teacher and a librarian, uh, family of three older sister, younger brother. Um, but one of my father's students had a father, had a, uh, their, their father was in the Montreal City Police Service, um, and in, he was actually shot in the line of duty um, one year. So when I expressed at the ripe young age of 18 that I wanted to go into law enforcement, my mom was like over my dead body <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because she had seen that uh, firsthand through uh, my dad's kids at school. Um, so I did what every teenager did, and uh, I moved far away. Um, so I could go to school outside of my parents' purview and, uh, um, you know, the twenties came and went, uh, with a career in different areas, big companies, uh, all that great stuff. Uh, and then when I was in my thirties, I, you know, reevaluated and said, you know, I'm going to go for this. Um, and I was old enough to stand up to my mom, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> and, uh, applied to the RCMP, got in, um, they, uh, in their wisdom, I don't know what wisdom they used, decided to send me to the lower mainland of BC. 
Um, spent a number of years there in uniform. Spent some time in plain clothes doing serious crime. Was promoted back into uniform uh, and then into a little bit of labor relations. And here we are. Um, you know, you had throughout that time and 2015, the Supreme Court um, ruled in the Mounted Police Association of Ontario case that um, the legislation the RCMP was operating under was unconstitutional and they were actually allowed to uh, form a union. There were uh, a number of groups waiting in the wings, different areas, you know, uh, one in Quebec, uh, a couple of that were sort of national and one in Ontario. And and me being, a, I don't know, a, uh, an 11 to 12 year member was looking at what was being offered and the mindset uh, provided by those particular groups. It didn't jive with, with what I thought was um, a future thinking um, possible union. So um, took a leap and said, hey, let's start our own something that's different um, and something that's national in scope and something that's really forward thinking. Uh, it took about a year to tour the country and educate some members and get them to sign up. And a lot of uh, other police officers in Canada wouldn't understand what a union drive is, is like in the policing world because, you know, the EPA, for example, has been around and it's just there. But, you know, we had to actually go and solicit support from our members. Um, we signed up oh, close to eight or 9,000 in the first year, um, which allowed us to make an application to the uh, Labor Board for certification. They held a vote um, in, let's see, would have been uh, uh, late 2018. Um, and overwhelmingly, I think 90 Seven percent uh, voted in favor of certifying the NPF, um, and that ultimately came out in mid 2019. Um, needless to say, um, it's kind of been uh, uh, the fire hose mm -hmm. since then. You know, you have to think it was 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 me and a couple of contractors dealing with accounting and um, some part-time, uh, assistance from an interim board. And now here we have, uh, overnight, if you will, um, the largest police union in Canada, probably the second largest in North America. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, <laughs> what do you do now? Yeah. I guess you kind of so, sit back and wake or you wake up one morning and you go, wow, what have I got myself into? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the good thing is we operate under a federal regime. So, you know, the government of Canada is not known for its uh, speedy efforts in uh, all of those labor things. So, you know, we clearly had some time. We served our notice to bargain um, the, week, the week after we were certified. And then you have to staff up, right? So we, uh, um, you know, held the elections across the country to build our board of directors, uh, um, started looking at um, permanent staff like general counsel and communications and accounting and finance and stuff. So that was pretty much the first year. At the same time, doing interim negotiations to allow for dues and 
recognition and uh, all that great stuff. And then into the fulsome research with the bargaining team um, to actually negotiate a contract that had never been done before. Um, So a lot of uh, uphill stuff. Uh, You know, I I have to give credit to... uh, to Mike over at the Edmonton Police Association and my colleagues over at the CPA, who uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, provided us some guidance and assistance along the way with different uh, resources and subject matter experts um, who are out there in varying fields. So couldn't have done it really this effectively without them. Um, But, you know, bargaining was fun because you also have to remember that in March 2020, just after we were certified, just as we're getting into bargaining, everything shuts down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, face mask, no face mask, vaccine, no vaccine, meetings in person, not meetings in person, going via Teams or Zoom, or, and, you know, trying to actually bargain with what is a pretty nameless, faceless employer anyway, um, via video conference from people you've actually never met. Uh, never been able to build a, uh, any kind of a personal relationship with was interesting for our first go round, <clears throat> um, and I think the 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 way the way we structure ourselves in bargaining was obviously a number of our full time board members were on that team to bring different perspectives, federal policing, contract policing, uh, international policing, isolated post-experience, uniform, non-uniform, specialty, you know, emergency response team, explosive disposal and such. And then supported by, you know, and we we hired an external negotiator because none of us had done this before. uh, And then guided by some uh, assistance in the federal labor world. Um, meaning lawyers, uh, the government actually did something similar, which was surprising. They actually hired external to be their lead negotiator. Um, and they built, they had their treasury board team of analysts and, and, and bookkeepers, which is apropos, but then they created an actual RCMP team of, you know, similar to us, subject matter experts of, you know, um, commissioned officers who have some isolated post experience or federal or international or contract and non-contract. So the interesting part was we already had relationships with the RCMP officers, but we didn't know Treasury Board. So we were actually able to, I think, leverage and make cases to that advisory board, to their negotiating team, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, be extremely reasonable in our ass. Um, and ultimately, you know, it took, uh, so we started bargaining, we exchanged proposals in June of 2020, and then it took a year, uh, you know, by the end of June, 2021, we actually had sealed a deal and boom and done. Um, so it was a, it was a fun experience. Well, I can't say fun. I don't want to do it again. Yeah. Especially not via video conference, but uh, you know, you have to imagine a, a contract from zero to not perfect. I granted, there's a number of challenges we still have to overcome, um, but getting there in in uh, twelve to to eighteen months, I think, was uh, quite the accomplishment. And that's 
really uh, due to the team we put together, which I think did a fantastic job. Yeah, I couldn't imagine trying to start that from the beginning. Like, where do you even start, right? Or who do you talk to? Uh, and you represent everybody in the RCMP, correct? It's the territories, the provinces. Quebec is not on their own uh, union. Everybody's under the NPF. Everybody's under the NPF, and that was that was one of the delays. Um, you know, I mentioned they had the certification vote in late, I think, November two thousand eighteen. Um, but the province of Quebec, where we do a lot of federal policing, um, had its own association, a smaller one. Um, they had actually launched a constitutional challenge <laughs> before the same labor board, um, saying they would like to be independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Quebec is unique and, you know, I grew up there, so I can understand their perspective, thinking that, uh, a national union representing the RCMP might overlook the unique needs of policing in the province of Quebec. Uh, so that actually, they had to decide that constitutional challenge first, which took the basically the first six months of 2019. Uh, and then once they decided that there, there was no uh, valid challenge, they opened all the ballots and uh, issued the certificate. So, yeah, so everybody falls under us uh, below the rank of inspector. So, you know, uh, constable all the way to corps sergeant major uh, falls under the NPF. Okay. And um, talking about the organization, so how is it broken down? And how do you represent the different uh, provinces or regions that you encompass? Uh Good question. There's actually been three iterations of the NPF, and we're, we're actually on the third one right now. Uh, we just had our AGM in June and uh, um, updated our bylaws because it had been uh, a few years since they'd been reviewed. So the current state going forward the next four or five years, hopefully, we have the country divided into three regions, um, basically Ontario East, so Ontario, Quebec, uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, the prairies, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, Alberta, and in Saskatchewan, we include Depot because they're a separate division for the RCMP. And then the Pacific North or the PAC North, we call it, you know, British Columbia, Yukon, Northwest Territories, and none of it. So those three regions, um, we operate at about one full-time board member for about 1,000 um, 1,200 members of the RCMP. So, uh, for example, in Alberta, we have two in um, two there, one in Saskatchewan, one in Manitoba. Globally, those three provinces uh, represent about five to 6,000 members of the RCMP. Okay. And do you guys go, so I think with the EPA, when we have, say, an officer-involved shooting or there's a serious injury on the job, are you uh, are you in a position to send representation out to those scenes, or how does that work for the NPF? Uh, we are, and and that was you know obviously 2020 was when we confirmed the inaugural board across the country, um, and then through 2020 we did a whole bunch of uh, hiring. Um, 
So you have to think we didn't have any local workplace shop stewards, if you will. Um, so we had to break down for all of those um, part-time NPF representatives and then hold elections for them. So that took probably about six months into 2020. And we have about a hundred and I think it's 115, maybe 118 uh, positions across the country where they're just, you know, they show up, they might be working traffic enforcement in Comox, BC, but they're also a part-time stipend receiving uh, representative for the NPF. So should there be something like happened in Saanich last week, uh, although it's not our jurisdiction, our members from West Shore were deployed to assist and support. So, you know, our local rep from um, uh, West Shore Detachment or Nanaimo would go down and, you know, just make sure there's anything that our members need. But at the same time, is there anything that Saanich needs that they don't have, that their, their association might, might, might need? Um, so there's there's that. Um, the 17 board members we had uh, would deploy themselves either by phone, by car, or by plane um, to member-involved shootings or critical incidents through the first year to year and a half. Um, at the same time as we were holding the elections for the local area representatives, we were creating. Uh, a labor relations officer position. Uh, today we have um, 20 of those scattered across the country. So they're, you know, they will deal with uh, grievances, human rights complaints, interpretations of the collective agreement, um, and uh, member involved shootings, uh, critical incidents, and stuff. So you have to figure that 17 people on our board can't do the entire country. Mm -hmm. So we have a complement now of close to 150-ish um, who can be deployed anywhere, anytime uh, to support, you know, whether it's a member in a PC MBI um, or um, any kind of a major incident. Wow, that's quite the undertaking. So you definitely are a busy guy kind of coordinating all this and, and doing all the bargaining and everything else. Uh, what else does the NPF do outside of bargaining, which I imagine is your kind of your core function, but what are some of the other uh, functions that you do um, or how do you take care of members? Uh, well, I mean, a big one uh, is uh, communications. So in communications has a huge portfolio, at least for us. And I think you have to, you have to think that, so pre-2019, the membership of the RCMP never had a unified voice to tell their story in anything. Um, you know, whether it's uh, responding to um, a poor media headline, whether it's uh, speaking out against this, that, or the other thing, or actually trying to correct a narrative publicly. So we've actually built a fairly robust um, communications and media relations team um, that, um, you know, they do a lot of, I think about twice, two to three times a week, sometimes they're region specific. Um, you know, we update our membership on what's going on nationally, what's going on regionally, about member-involved shootings, about 
ACER calls about IIO or IIU calls that are happening here, there, the other place, just so our own members know what's happening across the country and how the NPF is supporting those members. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, correcting narratives, um, uh, improving the, um, you know, the visibility of the membership of the RCMP and policing as a whole in Canada, uh, improving that uh, perspective. They've done a lot of polling, you know, Canada-wide about people's thoughts on policing. You got to remember at the same time, this is building up. Uh, so we're into COVID and then we hit George Floyd and then we hit Black Lives Matter and then we hit an entire weird sentiment of growth for anti-police uh, in the States that migrated a little bit up into Canada, unfortunately, because Canada is not the United States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had, you know, a team basically working on that, working on Canadian sentiments towards police, which your members should enjoy to know, just like our members enjoy knowing, is that Canadians thoughts towards policing at the lowest point, June of 2020, the support for policing was extremely high. It was probably about on average across Canada, about 74, 76% supporting police and actually in Alberta and Saskatchewan leading the country. Really? That's good. Yeah. So it, it, it it didn't sink uh, in Canada the way everybody thought it was. And that was mainly because of, you know, we all get influenced by what we see in the media. So I think part of it, part of the NPS job really is to not only correct media narratives, but also remind our own members that, Hey, just because someone takes a knee in a uh, parade does not mean that that reflects the perspectives of all Canadians. In fact, most Canadians are supportive of what you do and such. And and that support for police has actually grown over the last year and a half post the whole George Floyd thing. So, so we really, I think we need to remind our members of that because it's pretty easy in today's day and age with social media and all of the uh, stuff to get worn down just by um, poor reporting or poor, poorly chosen headlines, if you will. Uh, so there's the comms piece, yeah. And, you know, that, that's a number of angles, right? Uh, you know, one is updating our members. Two is uh, responding to media stories. Um, three is doing, uh, being proactive and, you know, writing our own op-eds for different newspapers, um, doing a lot of interviews and, and uh, uh, building relationships with the uh, more respected journalists across the country in different regions. Um, so, you know, we wanted to position ourselves to be uh, the first call, if you will. So call us before you call the RCMP if you want comment on a specific story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that we want to be adversarial with the public. Sometimes we are. Uh, you know, there was a uh, member-involved shooting um, in... Uh, trying to remember, I think it was Nanaimo, it might have been Comox, uh, D.C., where a police dog was killed. 
Um, and, you know, the family of that particular uh, deceased individual started spouting off a whole bunch of things, right? Um, which looked poor. So, you know, we can, it was an opportunity for us to come out swinging a little bit, which we did. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have death threats from that family, which is fine. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, ultimately we took the position that, you know, you make stupid, play stupid games, you win stupid prizes and, uh, and such is life. So, um, but that is a bit of a theme. I think, uh, the misconception or at least mm, the way we've been kind of, uh, told to be, and that's part of even maybe comes out in the quiet professional title is, you know, we usually just sit there and take it, but we are allowed to stand up for ourselves, you know, and we do have an opinion and um, even more so than opinion, we have a lot of the facts and it's just, how do you correct those narratives out there and put out, you know, the truth or as much of the truth as you can without affecting uh, like an investigation or, uh, you know, any sort of civil stuff that might come out of it afterward. Oh, I agree. And, you know, and one of the interesting things, because this is an entire other department that the NPF has that really supports the communications and supports our bargaining, uh, is, you know, government relations and policy. So um, the two stalwarts, really, I mean, aside from our finance department, which makes sure that we're audited and we're, we're paying our bills on time and all that great stuff, uh, you know, the communication side, which includes media and PR, and then the government relations and policy, which does a lot of our research. And you have to think, we're dealing with, um, so not only the federal government, but we've got eight provinces, three territories, and then probably 65 different municipalities that have independent contracts with the RCMP. Um, so many layers of um, government relations. And there's, like you say, um, speaking up on behalf of members of the RCMP or even just the policing profession in Canada, the data is clear that use of force is rarely, if ever, um, uh, used in Canada. Well, it's not if ever, but rarely, rarely used. Mm -hmm. So selling the narrative and educating the public and educating the media about the data that already exists, whether it's in New Brunswick or Alberta or Canada as a whole, that cops in Canada are extremely well-trained. We are extremely good at de-escalation. We're very good at resolving things peacefully. Um, and if and when something results in a use of force, and we're talking empty hands hard, like just a punch, mm -hmm. versus lethal force, um, you know, it's like one-tenth of one percent of all calls that all police go to in Canada. So educating the public that, hey, 99.9% .9 of the time, irregardless of strike, the cops that I call are going to be able to resolve this peacefully. Like that's something that needs to be, that's a story that needs to be told. So how much weight does the public then give to the 0.1% who are talking about, you know, you murdered my son, you murdered my daughter, or this, that, and the other thing. So 
that government relations and policy team really, you know, does a lot of research through StatsCan, the Alberta Government Justice, BC, um, to, to pull out all of the stuff that's already publicly available, but reporters just don't go there. Um, and we can, we can quote that and we can say, hey, like, here's the actual goods. Um, if you want to question the goods, right, then go to the government agency that collected the goods. But, you know, our people really do an excellent job and, and they are professionals. So, I think, yeah, we know. do need to have a better job of collecting the stats, but also getting those out there. I think a lot of the stuff that people see is just U.S. based, right? You see most of our media is from the U.S., so most of the stats and the, the headlines you see are from there. Um, I just think of half the time when you deal with someone, you're arresting them for an impaired. All they want to say is, uh, uh, you know, this is a DUI or DWI. You're like, that's, that's an American term, right? It's just in their heads. So they, they're getting influenced very heavily by the U.S. Uh, side of things. And it's not necessarily true. Like they, they do a lot of things good down there. And there's a lot of things that are very similar, uh, the way they operate and do things. But it's not all the same. And uh, I think telling the Canadian story is very important. And it sounds like you guys are doing a good job of that. The other part of it too is, uh, I mean, even for from the, the police association side here, we've always kind of had that struggle um, communicating with the membership. And like some of the ideas that you have, it sounds like you guys are hard at work trying to get those things out there on a consistent basis. I think that's a, a huge problem is, you kind of fall out of sight, out of mind. Um, but if you can put stuff out there a couple times a week, that's very important because things are so fast and just ever changing. Um, but also getting out the view from the frontline membership, because on a lot of these things like systemic racism, the militarization of police, all these narratives that are getting put out there, the stuff that management might be saying um, and Granted, maybe they they got to play a bit of a political game, uh, but the things that they're saying to the public are not necessarily matching the views of the frontline membership because, you know, there's the frontline is out there day-to-day doing things, not trying to be, uh, you know, a, a military. Um, but I think there's a, there's a lot of disconnect between what's said and um, and what's actually occurring. So... Definitely, if you, you try to get a handle on the narrative and put some truth into it from our side of things, uh, I think that's a huge, huge function of any association or federation. Yeah, and, and one of the warnings that I took away from our colleagues at the uh, Canadian Police Association was, you know, a, a, you know, a possible drop in engagement of membership. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whether it's, I don't know, the Vancouver Police Union, Toronto Police Association, I don't it doesn't matter. They all expressed challenges um, engaging or getting their members engaged, you know, whether it's uh, unsubscribed from an email list or not having the your membership's contact info outside the police service. So, so when we started, obviously, as members signed up, with us, with cards and all that great stuff. Um, you know, we collected all their personal contact info. So we have, we're in, a, we're in the unique position uh, of having high engagement already. Um, 
so the key for us is to maintain that engagement. You know, like every email that we send out to uh, uh, 17,500 or 18,000 members of the RCMP, because not everybody's signed up with us yet, surprise it or not, um, to receive our emails. Um, you know, we have about 72 to 78% of an open rate. So we know that people are, are, are actually opening the emails. It might just be to open and delete, don't know. But, but, but the engagement is still there. So we, we, we have to challenge ourselves to keep that line of communication open. And what we send out is relevant. It's not overwhelming. It's not too little, not too much. So there's a bit of a balancing act there. Um, so, and maintaining that, but, you know, part of the other part of the, the, in my view, the NPF's role is we have the advantage of, um, uh, you know, capacity, right. Or size versus, uh, you know, the Winnipeg police association, you know, smaller budget, smaller number of members, maybe mm-hmm. can't have a full-time media PR team, uh, full-time government relations team. So, you know, the fact that we're, we're huge, really. Um, and we have the ability to bring in resources and do that stuff. Part of what our comms team is doing is trying to build um, a change the narrative campaign, if you will. And I don't want to say change the narrative because I don't think the narrative needs to be changed too much because I know there's not a lot of anti-police sentiment in Canada, but we can always increase the support for policing as a whole and policing as a career. So, you know, they, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen, but, you know, your members might find value in that. If you were to Google the Scottish Police Federation, quote unquote, what would you do video series? Um, Back, I think it's 2014, 2016, where they put those together. There's four or five of them. uh, And they are, you know, uh, in your face. um, What would you do? You know, uh, two Scottish bobbies going to a report of a noise complaint and turns into a full-blown domestic and one of the members is uh, killed by the perpetrator. So then it's like it turns to the other one saying, and the, the, the quote is, you know, what would you do? They had great success with that in 14, 15, 16. Um, and it kind of inspired us and our director of comms to look at saying, how do we do that for Canada? And, you know, I think some they, police they, services did some of this maybe uh, where they've, they've kind of taken reporters at least and put them through scenarios to see how they would yeah. react how fast things actually develop. Oh, why'd you shoot this many times? Because it takes 0.2 of a second to do that and your dog brain and you just see someone coming at you with a weapon. You know, there's a million different scenarios. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, that's, that's, we're, we're still working on inserting uh, media into relevant training scenarios that obviously we have to, figure that one out with the RCMP because it's their training facility and, you know, granting strangers access. Um, um, but that's definitely something we want to, we want to look at, but this was more from a Canadian perspective. So, you know, we took that idea from Scotland and rebranded it 
to a, a Canadian one. Last year, they, we launched uh, what we call is, is the Why We Serve campaign. So there, uh, ultimately, there's a 60-second online video and a two 30-second, one English, one French videos. The 30-second ones we actually put out into um, movie theaters all across Canada. Okay. So, you know, so if you went to see, I don't know, uh, Doctor Strange um, in April, the last 30 seconds that you would see before the main feature is actually our video. And so we toured the country with the production company and we selected, uh, I think, about 24 members all across Canada, except for in the north. We couldn't get into the north with the COVID restrictions. And they just interviewed them and said, hey, tell us about you. Right. So, you know, it's uh, hi, I'm Fred. I'm a constable in Wetaskiwin, Alberta. And this is what I do. And this is why I chose to be here. And this is that. So, and we got guys on boats. We got folks in skidoos. We got like a, some amazing stories put together by this, uh, you know, video production company. Um, they go out and all about putting more shine on, you know, the uh, the badge of the members of the RCMP. You know, we're human too, um, but it's a really war- rewarding career, you know, and this is why we've chosen this. And the, the response has been fantastic. So, like, we're actually rebranding that a little bit this year just to keep it fresh and with, the, with another uh, campaign to go out this September, October. So... So lots of interesting things. And then, you know, as a hive off to that, things we've been doing internally, because that was obviously an external contract, was um, just telling member stories, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, interviewing and doing videos with individual members from different places. Uh, you know, we've got a fantastic one from this young First Nations uh um, kid on in Bellacula, BC, who talks about the fine line that he lives every day when it comes to reconciliation for his family, his heritage, and being in the RCMP and enforcing, if you will, colonialism on First Nations land. Uh, and, you know, and there's the mental health aspect. There's a corporal out in Nova Scotia who, uh, you know, uh, does a number of mental health and peer-to-peer initiatives and is a bit of an SME, right? And speaking about his experience in, um, in the RCMP and, and where he sees, you know, the future going. So uh, a lot of that's for our own members, but at the same time for the public to see that, hey, you're, and I hate to use the tagline, but, you know, you are humans and this is humanizing the badge, if you will. So that would kind of maybe lead into the next thing I was going to ask about. So it's a good transition here. Uh, some of the maybe recruiting, can you tell us what that looks like right now? If you have an idea of what numbers are, are we uh, seeing lots of people applying right now? Or is it, you know, everybody's kind of still maybe in that anti-police sentiment. It's kind of hurt numbers. And if you know, the numbers of people kind of going through depot, how many people might be retiring or leaving just for whatever reason? Yeah, well, I think recruiting and attraction to policing is probably the biggest challenge the RCMP and every other police service in Canada is going to face for the next five years, unless we 
unless we all get together and figure out how we accomplish and overcome this, uh, I'd almost say HR crisis, right? Um, yeah. and, and it's not, it's not just a, a Canadian problem. Uh, it's happening in Ireland. It's happening in Belgium. It's happening in Germany. Like it's happening everywhere, but in Canada is where we live and breathe it. And, uh, it's it's impacting every police agency. So what does that look like and how do we make it better? I know um, the RCMP has its challenges. They have rebranded and retooled and put in new, um, you know, measures to make the application process more efficient. You know, when I applied, it was at least a 13-month process from application to depot, and that went up, you know, to probably 18, 19 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think they've got it down to about seven to eight months application to uh, training in, in Regina. So that system is getting better. But so, you know, I mean, the grain hopper is working well, but how much grain is actually going into the hopper? That's the problem. And how do we get more people to consider policing as a career or even just as a profession or a job? And that's the the challenge I think everybody has to overcome because I think application numbers are down for everybody. Uh, I know the Ontario Police College can't fill their seats. Um, the Atlanta Police College is having challenges. Uh, the JI and BC uh, are having challenges. As you see, the Surrey Police Service um, moving to the Surrey Police Service from the RCMP, even they are having challenges um, um, getting enough applicants. So I think it's everywhere. Um, so, you know, really, how do we make policing a career of choice like it was 15 years ago? Um, I don't know. Are the numbers on the uh, attrition side greater than what's kind of coming in right now? Like, are we seeing the overall membership decrease uh, in general, or is it still kind of on the increasing side? Uh, no, the numbers that I've seen, we're still on the increasing side. Um, but if we don't fix the problem, that's going to change. Um, you know, because our workforce in the RCMP uh, a, we're starting, we're recruiting older now. Um, you know, it used to be the 19-year-old farm kid from Saskatchewan. Now it's a 27 to 28-year-old that might have one or two university degrees um, that's coming in. So, and what we're mm-hmm. also seeing is people aren't staying as long. Um, so, you know, for us in 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 our pension world, it's 35 years for a full pension. 25 years for a um, unreduced pension. You used to see members stay for 31 to 34 years. That was the average. And then it went down to about 29. Now we're actually seeing it's dropping to 26 and 25 and 24. So we're not, we're, we're getting them later in life and we're not keeping them as long. Um, and we see members that come in for five to 10 years and then go to something completely different. Like they go be a teacher or they go become a lawyer or they go uh, 
and do a completely stress-free job and become a garbage man. I don't know. <laughs> but they leave policing entirely uh, because they've had their fill, right? So, so right now, like the RCMP was averaging about, four years ago, they were averaging about 800 uh, retirements, resignations, and deaths per year. That dropped a little to about 650 or so when we were going through our negotiations because I think a lot of people were, open for a nice contract and then what that looked like would impact their decisions. Um, and now they're getting back up to 750 to 850 um, uh, per year. Uh, we're still graduating. Um, well, post COVID, I should say, we're still on track to graduate at least 800 or so this year. Um, in the midst of COVID, you know, Regina had to shut down. So I think in 2020, they only graduated uh, 375. 2021, as they ramped up again, they were up to about 750, 780. So those two years have hurt um, the attrition recruitment balance. But, you know, it, honestly, if we don't fix the applicant being interested, um, eventually, that older workforce is going to start leaving in the 900 to 1100 per year and we'll be behind the gun. And that doesn't even talk about growth, increase in mandate for policing. Um, um, uh, and then the, the resources, right? Every investigation yeah. now requires 10 times the amount of people doing all kinds of specialized things and it's, it's just more complicated. Yeah. So yeah, so I think I so I think globally, every police chief, uh, every union needs to be looking at how can we make this better? Because, you know, if you have adequate boots on the ground, you can actually have mem a membership that enjoys a decent work-life balance, can take their time off, can rest, recharge, spend time with family. And if you don't, then people get burnt out, their resilience fades, all of a sudden they consider going elsewhere or going on long-term stress leave or whatever. Um, so, you know, we need to really figure out the solution there um, and not just a solution for the next six months, you know, a solution for the next 10 to 20 years. I think it'll be interesting to see just if you look at uh, people in general and you can see this in the day-to-day, -day, the people we deal with, I don't think people have that sense of um, exploration anymore. They don't want to move, uh, you know, go out and leave the family, go out and, you know, seek out their own path. I feel like that's kind of lost. And some of the expectations that people have have definitely softened. So now everybody just wants to sit at home and have things brought to them and have a stress-free life and, you know, it's, uh, this job definitely takes somebody who wants to make things uh, for themselves, want to make something of themselves. And I think just, you know, you, the way society's kind of gone in general, it's, it's harder to find those individuals. Uh, it'd be harder to find the people, uh, some of my coworkers might say, that are going to storm the beaches of Normandy nowadays. You know, that's uh, few and far between what it used to be. Yeah, uh, I well, I, I I I try to remain as optimistic as possible. I think um, 
I would agree with you that there's been a demographic shift in Canada about, um, you know, I mean, why would you go be a police officer and put your, your, your life on the line when you can stay at home and make TikTok videos and make a similar income, right? So, yeah. so there is that component to it. But, but I think we, in policing generally, I'm not just going to blame chiefs. I'm going to, I'm going to blame us all because we're in this collectively. I think we have been complacent in thinking that there will always be uh, a new breed of Canadians that will take up the charge and come and, right? And I, I don't think we have modernized to this new demographic because I'm sure there's probably a ton of Canadians out there that would love the excitement and, and the joy and the rewarding career that policing can be if they do more about it, right? If we were more proactive, if we spoke in their language, um, you know, and so I think we just need to be better uh, and in, in promoting um, what is, and I think every cop will tell you it's probably the best job in the world. Um, so we just have to promote it, but we have to promote it through the lens of today's men and women. Yeah, I think it's yeah. uh, speaking to kind of a their sense of purpose. I think that's why you get a lot of people at these protests now. And um, I work with our public safety unit or the riot team. Um, and you stand on the front lines and I've been there in Ottawa. I've been here when Black Lives Matter stuff was going on. And right there on the front line, you have people yelling at you. And some of the stuff is completely nonsensical. And, um, you know, we have people protesting energy uh, uh, pipelines and oil, yet they're standing there talking on their iPhone with their backpack. Actually, one of the girls that was in front of us one day, she had a backpack that actually had an energy company name right on it. Um, half your clothes, your car, the bus that you got down there on, it's all made of plastic. It's all made of oil. You know, I think people don't, they just don't have other things to do with their time. Um, and, but I think they're looking for a purpose or something to belong to. And I think policing is something that can certainly give that to you, just like military service uh, or any kind of public service. And yeah, we do need to know how to talk to this generation in, in their language. So um, one thing I would like to kind of get into, speaking of numbers and uh some of the challenges out there. The there's a, a lot of the switchover and talk about switchover between um, the RCMP and whether it's a municipal force or a provincial police force. So if we kind of start on Surrey. Um, that is one place where a transition already is happening. Can you kind of tell us how has that change over gone, and then get into where it is, like right at this minute? Well. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Interesting. Um, so, you know, from, from an NPF perspective, we've tried to remain apolitical. So, you know, from day one, when the mayor passed their motion in council and, you know, we want to move to a municipal police service, you know, our position has always been, Hey, our members sign up for service to Canada. They want to live in safe communities. So, you know, just do your due diligence um, and talk to your people, meaning the residents of the community, 
um, and see what they want, right? Um, and, and find out what their priorities are and where they would like to go with policing in general. Because again, we were 2000, that was 2000, late 2018 into 19. And then obviously you had the whole George Floyd and all that great stuff. So we tried to remain apolitical, not supporting one side or the other, just sitting back and saying, if your residents want it, your residents get it, right? And and we'll work through with you on that that, that transition. Unfortunately, that particular municipal government is showing, um, I think they're showing the world or Canada really how not to build a police service, um, mainly because they didn't do their due diligence. They didn't do a feasibility study. They didn't really canvass the public and they, you know, pushed ahead. What we've seen is, and, you know, all credit to those members who signed up with the Surrey Police Service, good on them. And, you know, um, we'll, uh, I hope it's successful. And, and, and if it isn't, obviously the RCMP will remain there. But what they're seeing is, you know, for example, uh, getting your own uh, IMIT network. That was never thought of. And, you know, there's a multi-million dollar hit to a city's budget. Um, you know, what does proactive recruiting look like in today's day and age? And perhaps overestimating the community's interest in joining a new police service or overestimating um, neighboring police services and even the Surrey RCMP about how many would patch over. Um, I, I think that was overlooked um and then Did you have just, a lot of people patch over i think there's been about 40 40 some maybe 60 so not oh. that many the the thought was i think that the plan was that about 70 percent would patch over and you know what we've seen is less than 10 percent uh, move over. And those that have moved over, uh, a lot of them are basically double dipping, right? They've got their 24 and they can take their RCMP pension and start something new. Um, mm-hmm. So so there was that challenge. So, and, and, you know, keeping in the back of your mind, it's all about community and public safety, right? So now you have this protracted process. We're going on four years now and um, a slow deployment of a new uniform into the city. Um, and is there confusion from the public? Who's the police jurisdiction? Who isn't? And how does this go about? So, you know, whether it's successful or not, and, you know, for those members who passed over, I hope it is. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, it's kind of been an example of what not to do from a government perspective. So then you go over to, and so, and where that's at right now is they're in that quagmire of trying to get enough Surrey Police Service members um, trained uh, and on the road to actually increase their complement. I think they have maybe 90 or 95 uh, out there in the community now. And the plan is to have, I think, 175, if I'm not mistaken, 175, 200 by the end of this year. From what I understand, though, they, it's not, you know, it's not the whole gambit of different type of units either. So are they RCMP, you know, if there's a, if there's a homicide, does Surrey have a homicide unit or is the RCMP still fulfill some of those roles? 
Well, in the lower mainland, it's a little different um, than, you know, your average municipal police service, because what they do is, uh, you know, they have integrated teams. So, you know, Abbotsford Police, uh, West Vancouver, Port Moody, uh, and then Coquitlam RCMP, Surrey, Burnaby, will create an integrated homicide investigation team, for example. I think there's eight of them throughout the lower mainland, uh, all made up of different police services. And they share the cost and they share the resourcing. So, um, you know, you can have a homicide in Burnaby and you've got some uh, Surrey cops that are seconded to IHIT, Abbotsford cops that are seconded to IHIT, and maybe Coquitlam RCMP then go and investigate that homicide in Burnaby. So uh, from what I understand, Surrey Police Service is going to maintain that model uh, with deploying Surrey Police Service members to like the IHIT or uh, combined forces, special enforcement units, or uh, uh, that kind of stuff. So there's like there's no real risk there. It's just they just need to build the, their capacity, uh, which all comes down to recruiting uh, and recruiting enough members to be able to have that surge capacity in in their city. Okay. Oh, so maybe um, we'll kind of transition a little bit to a bigger. Uh, topic where Alberta is constantly talking about the provincial police force and where is that at right now? Are you allowed to kind of comment on that? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's limbo. Um, and again, you know, the NPF with Alberta, um, we have tried to remain apolitical, even though it's been hard at times uh, watching Jason Kennedy do his self-destruct. But, um, uh, but you know, we've, we've tried to remain nonpartisan. You know, we don't support the NDP, the Liberal Party, whatever, the Wild Rose or the UCP, any of that stuff. It's all about facts and, and fact-driven and educating the public about, um, and you may be surprised, governments are sometimes not, forthcoming about everything that a taxpayer should know and they might yeah. put their own lens on things. So, so for us, it was, you know, being involved in the process, right? The uh, government of Alberta hired PricewaterhouseCoopers. So we wanted to sit with them and talk about things that they should consider in their report to the province, you know, um, housing for an Alberta provincial police service in small spots, right? Have you considered what that might cost? Um, transporting members in and out of isolated posts, uh, you considered what that might cost. Those types of little nuances that uh, might get overlooked. Um, and then, obviously, deployment models. You know, what police resource methodology are we using right now? Uh, what police resource methodology would an APPS use? So, would there be um, I don't know, in lack of a bitch, would you have a detachment, I'm just pulling it out of my head, of seven members? Or would an APPS do it with 10 or five? So, so is their whole goal to have just more control over the money, the resources? Because that's what I would see as one benefit to a provincial police is they could say, you know, we control the recruiting, we control where money goes, we're not at the mercy of Ottawa 
to you know send us somebody from depot and we kind of go at it on our own yeah i think i think that's part of the narrative uh and again it comes so this is where um governments will tell one side of the story perhaps to sway a vote um and we position ourselves to sit back and say well wait a second actually here's the other side of the story so, you know, it was a lot for us, it was a lot about explaining to Albertans, uh, explaining to uh, municipal councillors, Reeves, um, urban municipality associations that, okay, so Alberta has a contract with the RCMP, so does the city of Lloydminster, the city of Red Deer, Fort McMurray, and such. Here's what's in that contract. It actually says in here that Ottawa doesn't control you. The only thing Ottawa controls is, you know, the uniform, the use of force options, um, the recruiting process, not the number of police officers you can have. Um, and Ottawa provides policies, procedures, and guidance, right? Like use of force intervention models and all that great stuff. So it was about spelling out for local Albertans and decision makers that, they actually have a lot of the power in their police service already. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they've been told they don't, right? So, and, and one has to remember that, and that, uh, you know, the current UCP government, you know, um, has a number of anti or separate separation, if you will, initiatives, right? You know, creating an Alberta pension plan, uh, moving away from the RCMP, um, talking about different things, yeah, um, and you know whether they are from uh, a dislike of the current federal government or or not, um, they are really about positioning Alberta uh, better in confederation. So, you know, so we actually spoke to Albertans. We did a lot of polling about whether or not they think it's a priority, if it's worthwhile. Um, we've done a lot of road shows and tours, speaking to Albertans. Uh, and ultimately just getting their perspective and overwhelmingly they say, yeah, this is stupid, really. Mm -hmm. Um, so that has guided a lot of our, um, communications to government sitting back and saying, even your own people don't want this. So why are you going down this road? And, you know, we're recommending that, that you're not because it's going to put the province in a fiscal hole. Uh, for deck to come. I mean, PricewaterhouseCoopers did a decent report, but they didn't think about little things like um, where are you going to train all these cops? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, so, who's who's the one? Like, is it um, is it the Mounties' job to? I want to say fight this, but um, or is it the NPFs? Or do you both fight the idea of the? provincial police force, but maybe do it from, you know, for different reasons? Well, uh, and, and this is, you know, uh, the interesting world that I live in. Um, I would, I, I think, you know, for example, you know, you talk about Surrey, you talk about Alberta, or even upcoming in, a, you know, uh, New Brunswick, there's a number of police reviews going on across the country. I would love for the RCMP to actually stand up for itself um, and say, hey, Mr. Mayor or Mr. Premier, 
we do a fantastic job. Um, what would you like us to do better so that we can satisfy you? Unfortunately, the RCMP is not known for um, that kind of communications or PR strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have, it has essentially fallen to the NPF to do that side of the work is, you know, to speak up for the membership, to speak up for the good work that they do day in and day out, um, and advocate for, um, how they serve Canadians, uh, mainly because the RCMP has been kind of silent on, on, on that side. Um, now we do have a great partnership, you know, with the commanding officer of K division and, uh, uh, the commanding officer in Nova Scotia for the ongoing mass casualty commission where we'll, you know, share a lot of information so that what we're bringing out to the media is very relevant, uh, and accurate. They just feel they can't say it because, you know, um, whether, I don't know, the 17 levels of approval in Ottawa won't let them or it'll just take too long. So, so yeah, I would love for them to do it, but uh, they don't. And and honestly, we can't all have chiefs like Rick Hansen in Calgary, you know, <laughs> who, who, who really uh, thought members first uh, and, and, and that perspective. So, And, well, you kind of touched on it a little bit here and uh, we'll move over to the Nova Scotia, the recent news out of Nova Scotia, where they're talking about the, um, when they're doing this review of the uh, mass shooting and talking about how Brenda Lucky was pressured by maybe Bill Blair and the Trudeau government uh, into releasing information about firearms used to support a further gun ban. Uh, what, what, if any, uh, position does the NPF have on this? Because I don't imagine the RCMP is going to do much for sticking up for themselves in this one. They're probably just going to avoid the media altogether. But does the NPF have a say in anything? And are they going to offer any sort of opinion? Well, I think, uh, you know, my opinion is, again, I'm cautiously optimistic that this is um, different people's perspectives that is, has been blown out of proportion. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, I certainly hope that the uh, minister's office didn't think that they could interfere. And if they did, I certainly hope that the commissioner didn't um, bow down to that pressure because the police must be independent from government and, and such is life. So, you know, I know Darren Campbell, I know him personally, uh, um, great cop. Um, I know he has a, has been at the forefront of uh, the mass casualty inquiry since day one. Uh, as well as the inc- what happened in Porta Peak two two plus years ago, um, and I know he takes good notes, mm-hmm. uh, and I also know he's scheduled to give evidence before the commission um, at the end of this month, um, based on everything that he did um, throughout that uh, those events and those investigations, and then the following month the commissioner and the former commanding officer of Nova Scotia are scheduled to testify as well. So, you know, do I have a position on it? My position is I hope they didn't tarnish the brand 
because we're doing so much work to build up the membership and the credibility of the good work that they do every day. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to tear that down in one instant. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see what the end result is uh, once they give their evidence. I would say, uh, uh, I see what you're saying, that, but the like, track record of some of the individuals uh, yeah. in the government there is not so great. So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see the outcome. And it goes to one of the challenges that, you know, uh, that the RCMP faces. Um, you know, the commissioner's office in the RCMP is actually a deputy minister's position within government. So, you know, so Brenda, you know, although she is the commissioner of the RCMP, she's also a deputy minister under public safety. So it is there the ability to feel pressured by your minister to do different things, irregardless of the person occupying the position. And is that acceptable to Canadians Mm -hmm. when Canadians really think that the police should be independent of government, right? In a municipal police service, you know, it's a little different, right? The chief uh, may be part of the police board, but is not the chair of the police board. Um, And the chief pretty much takes direction from the police board, but it's not operational. Mm -hmm. It's all administrative, right? You know, here's your budget. Uh, Yeah, you want new guns. Okay, you got the money and that kind of stuff. And the chief is pretty independent in the speed, flow, and direction of investigations, as well as what to investigate, how to investigate, and the standards applied. So is that interference possible? And how much are we willing to tolerate or should it be changed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And I know that was even a question back when, uh, back when I was in the RCMP so in 2011. Um, I remember people talking about that, how the RCMP is to a degree, I guess, just another department of the federal government yeah. instead of just being a separate body and kind of, having their own, more of their own control of things. Yeah, the, the, the perception is definitely there. And, and this particular incident, you know, whether it happened or didn't happen, we'll figure that out eventually, um, is just, you know, more, like, it, honestly, it just never should come up because the possibility is just not there. Uh, the commissioner should be, feel comfortable um, in receiving a phone call from a minister of public safety and basically saying, respectfully, minister, we're not having this conversation and click yeah. and, and should feel hundred percent comfortable doing that. Um, you know, and, and are we there? I don't know. Uh, kind of coming up to the end of our time here. I did want to maybe try and end on a positive note though, sure. and just say, see, is there any, um, anything on the horizon for the NPF, for the membership, uh, any big changes coming or anything you think people should look forward to? Uh, well, changes within the NPF or, I, I, well, I mean, we obviously... Or even within the RCMP. Uh, within the RCMP, well, you know, um, change is a constant. <laughs> With, within the RCMP organization that's big, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good news that's happening within the RCMP, like... Uh, we're finally getting to a point where we're getting uh, uh, new CEWs, new tasers. Uh, the body-worn camera program is finally getting to a point where they're going to select a vendor. 
um, new so pistols. that will be happening. Yeah. The body cams. Yeah, that will be happening. They're actually, uh, I think the, the target date is to deploy in uh, Alberta, Nova Scotia, and Nunavut uh, in August or September of this year, and then the rest of the country to follow. Okay. Um, so that's good news. You know, uh, finally, new pistols. They're almost 30 years old, right? Um, they've actually got the uh, request for information and proposals out. So another notch down to uh, to move forward with uh, no idea what it's going to look like or no idea what gun they're going to choose. But obviously, we're in the short strokes now of seeing something uh, positive for uh, for new use of force options. Um you know, uniform-wise, unfortunately, we're stuck with the gray shirts for a while, but they're doing a, uh, a pilot project, government pilot project. It'll take two years, but about looking at, you know, dark blue shirts, uh, different fabrics and stuff like that. Uh, new soft body armor is coming, right, uh, okay. which is obviously good stuff to uh, replace the, uh, the challenging one that we have right now. Um, Sam Blacks or, you know, duty belts are modernizing. I think there's going to be three or four options available to different members for different waists, for different back tolerances, for different sizes. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff happening, um, inside, you know, we've been involved in all of these in some capacity along the way. Um, you know, um, what else can I say? We're going into another round of bargaining probably in January <laughs> next year. So, so you'll uh, be busy. <laughs> well, yeah, the team will definitely be busy. So, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, by the end of 2023, we'll have uh, secured another contract and maybe that'll give us some peace for two or three or four years past that. Uh, okay. But yeah, a lot of good things happening. Nice. Um, so finally, I uh, just want to make sure we get it out there. Where can people connect with you or the police federation? Uh, if if our members have any issue, right? We have a we've also built a twenty four seven three sixty five. Um, uh, I hate the word call center, but that's essentially what it is. Um, they work every day. 24 hours a day, every day of the year. And that is NPF-TEAM, uh, T-E-A-M. So they get out a call or they can email. It's uh, info, I-N-F-O, at NPF-FPN.com. Uh, and that's really our central repository to deploy all sorts of resources across Canada. So if it's a yeah, question about a collective agreement or a dental claim or a promotions issue or even a member-involved shooting or uh, in-custody death, whatever the case might be, those folks are there to get the right people on the ground out uh, and answer and support. Nice. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else you think we missed? Anything we didn't touch on that you want to make sure you get out there? No, I think uh, I think we covered a lot of ground, Great. and uh, you know I really appreciate uh, the invitation and the ability to just chat. As you can see, I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll be back on. There's a there's always something new coming up, so uh, we'll be glad to have you back. Um, if you stay on the line, I'm just going to end the recording here, and uh, sure. yeah, we'll definitely talk again. So. Oh. 
I forgot to mention uh, forgot to mention Nathan, that if any member wants to get a hold of me, so if they were to call uh, or email, they just have to mention to those folks that they'd like to to, to talk to me or email me, and then the, the 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 guys and gals at the call center will either forward me the email or send me along the contact details. So all right. Um, so yeah, thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back with another one real soon. Hey, take care.